Lord, you said some outrageous stuff and some of that is in this section this morning and we ask that you would open our hearts to understand what you meant and to respond to your Spirit's leading in your precious name. Amen. There are some deep mysteries in the Gospels. Some of these are mysteries because they're difficult to understand, but I think more often they're difficult because they're hard to believe or to enact. And even when we have believed them and understood them and even enacted them from time to time, they quickly can elude us yet again. And it's a mystery even to ourselves how we can find ourselves in a place where we didn't expect to be. As uh, Paul says in another place, the thing I want to do is the thing I don't do and the thing I don't want to do is the thing I end up doing. So those are mysteries, but that's just a bit of a, a background comment to what Jesus is saying here this morning. And we'll just start off by acknowledging that Jesus is interested in people following him, but he's not interested in a proprietary kind of sense of ownership of that group. It's quite remarkable really, that there's these people who are doing stuff, they've kind of started a a Jesus franchise on the side and they're casting out demons, but the apostles or the disciples are saying, but we don't even know these guys, they haven't been part of the club. They don't know the handshake or they don't pay their subscription fees or sit around the table with us, this kind of thing. And Jesus' response is quite remarkable. He says, don't stop them. If they're doing good... Let them do the good and they can't quickly turn around and badmouth us if they're doing good in my name. Let it happen. That's not very church-like, is it? (laughs) No one owns the followers of Jesus. Not even Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Anyone who follows Jesus is a follower by definition of the fact that they are following They're not owned. There's no proprietorial rights there. If you follow, you are a follower. Makes sense, hey? It's pretty straightforward at that level. In another place, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who sent me. So it's not those who say they're part of the group that are the followers of Jesus. It's those who are following Jesus who are followers of Jesus. Sounds a bit too obvious. In another place, Paul says something. He says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And uh, again, this is the idea that follow those who are following Jesus to the extent that they are following Jesus. Paul doesn't say, be an imitator of me and become a Roman citizen if you can. He doesn't say, be an imitator of me and become a Pharisee or get the skills to be a tent maker. Those are not the aspects of Paul that Paul is saying, copy me. He's saying, to the extent that I do what I saw Jesus doing. Follow that. Be like me to the extent that I am like Christ. Church leaders sometimes put a range of things forward to be followed. And uh, I saw on the internet, isn't the internet marvellous, the things you can see on the internet? 
There's a comedian, I think he's a comedian, he's certainly an arrogant bloke, uh, Bill Maher in the States, I think he likes bagging religion generally, but he said some stuff this week, or I don't know when he said it, but it was on the net that I saw it this week, and he was really hammering warmongering Christians. And there are a fair few of those around the place. Uh, religion has a really bad name for warmongering. But this is all the more remarkable in the Christian context because Jesus was so emphatically non-violent. And uh, Bill Maher made the comment, he said, uh, if you're a warmongering Christian, you are not a follower of Christ. You might be one of his fans, but you're not following him because he didn't do that. He didn't go out and blow people up. He didn't go out and kill them. He was killed by them. So you might be a fan of this Jesus, but you're not a follower of him. So following Jesus means following Jesus. Again, not being a, uh, a carpenter necessarily, not wearing a robe or sandals, but in the, the level of his values and what he desired the way he related to people, what he saw as important. And there's no paradox in following Jesus because in all other contexts, if you, if you have a guru, for example, who says, I am a guru, I have come up with this whole new way, it's my system, I'm completely autonomous, I'm not following anybody, come and follow me. There's a paradox inherent in that because if you follow somebody who's not following anybody, to truly follow that person, you've got to stop following them. Because they're not following anyone. You want to be like them, then you shouldn't follow anyone. You see the paradox inherent in that? If, if someone stands up and says, I'm not following anyone, come and follow me, what they're really saying is, don't follow me too closely. Because I'm not following anyone, and if you follow me, you won't follow anyone. Whereas with Jesus, he says, I do the things I see my Father doing. Jesus is a follower. And he says, follow me, just as I do the things I see my Father doing. There's no irreconcilable paradox in that, in a sense. And so we can genuinely follow one who genuinely follows what his Father's Spirit leads him to do. We can be followers because we follow a person who is a follower. In the reading that Leanne read, there was a word sin that was used a couple of times. In the original text, it's a word scandalizo or scandal. And some of you in your version might have the word to stumble, which is a bit closer to the, to the meaning bit of background. One of the things about our humanity is that we are people who desire, we have passions and we, we want things. And we often feel that our desires are innate to us. They are uniquely ours, they come from our heart and they're not representative of anybody else and we don't get them from anybody else. But there's a mounting uh, pool of evidence to indicate that actually desire is something that we learn. It's not actually innate. And in fact, we get our desires from the group of people that raise us. We actually desire the thing that the group says is desirable. 
and we learn what the group says is desirable and because we want to be part of that group and want to have meaning and significance in that context, we learn that desire. I mean, fads are a, an example of this. Why were yo-yos so popular when I was a kid? Like, everyone had to have a yo-yo. Whether you were good at it or not, you had to have one because everybody else had one. Everyone else desired it. So you had to join in that desire or you were the odd person out. You weren't participating in the group. You know, flares and hobnail boots, how did they ever get into fashion? <laughs> they come back into fashion every now and then too. Uh, particular cafes or restaurants become popular and part of their cachet is actually that they are popular. And we follow the desire of other people. And you might say, oh, well, I, I don't do that because I'm far too mature. But at the deepest level, in all sorts of areas, we do it all the time. Things become desirable precisely because other people desire them. And the stock market is the rawest example of this. A share in a company has value according to how many people desire it. And if nobody desires it, it loses its value. It's, it's pure theory in practice at that point, in a sense. And we select models for our desires. We don't do that consciously. Sometimes it happens in ways that we're not even aware of. And these models are often... Uh, primary caregivers, people who raised us because we enter their world and they're the ones who tell us the things that are important, what we can do and what we can't do. And so often, most often, we develop desires based on the desires of those who raised us in the initial phase. And then we become teenagers, snotty those brats who are rebellious and all that sort of thing, and we select new models for our desires that represent a move away from the ones that we've had because we're trying to find out what we really desire and part of that is to explore. And so you get all sorts of reactive kind of moves at that point like punks and emos and I don't even know what they all are these days. Um, but people will take new models and follow the, desi the desires of a new group in the attempt to discover who they are. The new model represents a move away, but there's still a model that we're following. We don't just do our own thing. We find a new thing to follow, a new person, a new group to follow. This is a human thing, but it's profoundly problematic because competition for scarce resources breeds violence. And you might go, hang on a minute, that's a big leap. This is a truism and it was tragically and graphically displayed this week just outside of Mecca in the most simple of forms where too many people wanted to be in a particular space at one time and they couldn't all be there and live. And so many hundreds of them, or a couple of hundreds of them, died. And it, 700, that's right, they just up, updated it. 700 and about another thousand were injured because they all desired something that they couldn't have. And they didn't go out to hurt each other. But just their desiring of a scarce resource became violent. And we see it in all sorts of 
other ways. In the past, there's been wars over oil because we were concerned about having enough oil resources for heating and machinery and so forth. Uh, people every now and then have apocalyptic speculation that water, will, drinking water will be the next scarce resource and there'll be wars over it and the way the climate changes, who knows? But the issue is that if we take our cues from those around us with regard to what to, de to desire, if that becomes something that is scarce, we're headed for rivalry and envy and jealousy and conflict and violence. And herein is the history of humanity. Just read your history books. It creates a kind of feedback loop. Like the PA, if I put the, this microphone up towards the uh, speaker, apart from Ian wanting to throttle me, you'll get this sound. You've all heard it screeches suddenly because there's a loop that happens where the microphone picks up the hum of the speaker and amplifies it and it just keeps going and going and going louder, louder, louder. It's a feedback loop. And that's what happens when everybody gets the cues of their desire from each other. We move rapidly into an escalating situation like the situation outside Mecca. Things exponentially escalate. I put it to you that that's what Jesus is talking about when he uses the word scandal. Don't take your desires from the context of the people around you. It will cause you all sorts of grief. It will wreck community and society. It will breed envy and jealousy and rivalry, competition and violence. This is a very extreme thing that Jesus is pointing out because he goes on to say, this is so important. He says, if your hand causes you to go in that direction, cut it off. If your eye causes you to go in that direction, gouge it out. Now, we don't, we don't think for a moment that Jesus was interested in self-harm. There's no real suggestion or any examples, except in really weird stories, I think, that anybody ever did this kind of thing in actual fact. He's, he's speaking with emphasis. He's saying, this is so important. It's worth being maimed over. Don't, don't go and maim yourself. <laughs> This is not an option. This is of critical importance, basically. Dying to rivalry, jealousy and envy is a key move in the Gospel. We are all following. Okay, We're all following all the time. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you can identify where your desires come from or not, you are following. We are an admixture of our experience and our upbringing and what the society is telling us. It's, we are followers. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Don't follow the desires that the society is telling you about. When we follow Jesus, we diffuse rivalry. We actually de-escalate the competition because there is no competition in the area of loving and self-giving 
and being humble and gracious and alive and attentive and generous. If we wanted to have a competition on those things, a rivalry, let's have that rivalry. Let's be more loving than everybody else. Let's be more generous. Let's be more self-giving. That diffuses violence and rivalry and envy and jealousy. This is what the writer to the Hebrews was getting at when he wrote, let us spur one another on or get under each other's skin to do love and good deeds. If we're really going to provoke each other, let's provoke each other in such a good way that it really transforms everything. I'm just getting around to a number of different uh, community groups at the moment and meeting some fantastic volunteer workers in this community My goodness, what a great community we are fortunate to be a part of. But you know, even these really good uh, volunteer workers who give so much time and they they want good and they want to do good and yet you start to hear the politics and one slightly, or not so slightly, bad-mouthing another because of... You know, they want to do good but they also want something else. They want recognition or they want influence or they want the adulation of their peers, or something like that. And the rivalry, it's so there with us. It's so part of who we are. And Jesus would say to us, once that happens, cut it out. Whatever you need to do, stop it. It will end badly. Follow me. Take your cues from me. He finishes up by basically saying if we lose that particular distinctive, we've lost everything. It's like salt that is no longer salty, useless. If we're going to be the Christian church and not follow Jesus, forget about it. It's like being warmongers and following someone who was a, a non-violent person. It's, it's incongruent. This is the Christian distinctive par excellence, following Jesus in self-giving love. Not in rivalry, but in giving ourselves to one another. This is the difference that can truly change the world in a powerful way, diffusing rivalry, making peace with enemies, sharing the resources fairly with the world. In a moment we're going to gather around this table and we're, we have a very symbolic meal. It's not really a meal, although we do get to eat the bread afterwards and it's great bread. As we gather around the table, something remarkable happens here because we see the bread and the cup, which represents for us Christ. But also because we stand around the table, we see each other. And there's an opportunity here to decide not to take our cues from one another with regard to our desires and being rivalristic in that sense, but to see each other through the bread and the cup and see Christ in one another and want to be a model of following Christ to each other and see the model that each other provides for us in following Christ and get under each other's skin in that direction, to do love, and good deeds, not to be more fashionable or smarter or more powerful or wealthier or have a better gadget or... No, 
in love and good deeds and self-giving and generosity following Christ. That's our opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, just as your words were very challenging, your whole way of life, so different to our instincts, I guess, our instincts towards survival. Because you weren't interested in survival, you were interested in life to all its fullness. And that's what you call us into. And we find that as we pour out our lives to one another in response to you, knowing that you hold us for all eternity and nothing that we give to you is ever in vain. We thank you for that call. We want to be your people. In your glorious name. Amen.